as a member of the NYPD. He was shot in the line of duty. He's here to talk about the shooting, his injuries, his recovery, and where he's at today. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. The Law Enforcement Today Radio Show and Podcast is brought to you by Retalk.com, the new social network. Are you frustrated with current social media platforms? Well, there's a new platform called Retalk for people just like you. The platform is run and moderated by people who believe in patriotic, family values, and certainly are on the side of law enforcement. You can talk about anything, from law enforcement issues to gardening to politics. Go to their website now at retalk.com. That's retalk.com. Calling us from South Florida, Palm Beach County area, we have Dean Simpson on the phone. Dean is retired NYPD. He is also an author of two books. Number one, The Blue Pond, a memoir of an NYPD foot soldier. And second is Godless versus Liberty, the radical left's quest to destroy America's Judeo-Christian foundation. Dean, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. Uh, John Jay, thank you for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity to speak with you today. Well, I'm glad you are because we're going to talk about something that it's tough to talk about. I know a little bit of Dean's story. I don't know the details. So a lot of what he's going to talk about is as much a surprise to me as it is to you listening. You were retired from NYPD. How long were you on the job? I was on the job just a little over seven years. Okay, gotcha. And I did look at your story a little bit, and our stories are remarkably similar, but I don't want to be a spoiler. I want to go into, you're on the job, you you. You come from a police family. You you had all the ideology I did. I'm going go in there. I'll make a difference. Uh, it's a calling. It's here to help people, save lives. I'm not saying that's negative. I'm saying that's how I felt. I came in there to change the world, and it changed me. Well, for me, um, growing up in a, in a police family, it, it, it is like a calling. You know, seeing my father in uniform, hearing his stories when I was young, uh, it was something that from an early age, I knew this is where I wanted to go. So once I became a police officer, when I was a rookie, I was, I was very fortunate. My father, he, he was a decorated officer. He was retired at the time when I was on, but he still had a lot of influence on the department. So this, I, I believe I should know this, but I think there's 75 precincts in the NYPD, it might be 77, and plus all the details. But the, the crown jewel is uh, Midtown Manhattan. So if you if you have a phone call, if you have a hook, that's where you want to be. And I wanted to work in Brooklyn for really one reason, because it was closer to me, and that's where my girlfriend was at the time. Right. So uh, my father said, no, you're going to go experience the city. And it was one of the greatest gifts ever given to me. I mean, it really opened up my eyes. Uh, the first six months is in your rookie uh, time is basically it's a, they're broken into divisions. I was in Division Three which is all like Midtown Manhattan, put it simply. And uh, in that six months, uh, you were the sergeant, uh, other other rookies, and 
um, there was a lot of camaraderie. We had a very tight group, um, and it was probably at a, the time I spent on the job. It's a time I look back on the most that I had the most fun. We were just we were young. We were all kids. I mean, I was twenty years old. Oh yeah, uh, I was actually. You know, I came out of the academy, Dean. I thought I knew everything. I was a 21, 22-year-old kid. I really knew nothing. And I thought I knew what I signed up for. The truth is, it was far more violent than I could have imagined. And you're right. The early days were the best. And I really enjoyed it. I fairly enjoyed it. I want to clarify something. I say when I came in to, to change the world, it changed me, not for the better. means there's physical and mental scars. I don't think I'm a bad person. I owe no apologies. I did everything the best I could. And, but I bear the brunt of what happened. Yeah. I mean, after it was kind of, it was kind of odd because, um, we do six months in for that first six months. I mean, you're a police officer. Nobody knows you're a probationary officer because you're still in uniform. You know, you have your firearm, but once you finish your six months, then you go to your assigned command and, it was the last day of my rookie division together with the guys. And it was as if like God was preparing me for like the next uh, seven years because there was a uh, fire on the east side of Manhattan and there were several fatalities and our unit uh, was sent there to secure the building. And I really, I mean, I'm trying to think when I was a rookie, if I ever saw any uh, dead bodies, I don't remember I know when we were in the academy, we had to go and you know observe an autopsy. Uh, but on that last day, I didn't see the, the bodies were already taken away by the time we got there. But the what was left behind stays with me to this day. And one of the things was there were there were nails embedded uh, in the wall by the roof door. And what happened was there was a uh, they couldn't get out the roof door. There was it was against code. However, they had it locked, and that's where several people ha- had died. And then you, when you see say nails; it was fingernails. It wasn't nails. I'm, I'm sorry. Yes, I should have yeah. uh, been more clear about that. It was fingernails. No, that's a and, horrible thing to see. Yeah, I was just like, this is this is terrible. And not being done with it, uh, my my sergeant. I was I was good friends with my sergeants. Uh, they were great guys, great mentors. Uh, he he taps me on the shoulder. He goes, "Listen, I need you to." go down to the medical examiner's office. We're having uh, a family come in to identify one of the bodies. And I'm thinking to myself, if there was ever a time, I wish they didn't have confidence in me, that today would be the day. I, the last place you want to be is uh, down there. It's a very uh, depressing, morbid building to be going into. And that part, when I, when I had to go in and the family identified the body, was something else. I mean, this was all the last day. And that was the stepping stone now when I go into my command that now I start dealing with death all the time right. because as a rookie in your main command you get stuck stuck with the doas that die alone you got to secure the body until the me comes and like anytime there's a a, a real bad detail you don't want to get that you know somebody floats up uh, on from the water or floater you're, you're stuck there until uh, they take it away so like all of a sudden that death is around me all the time i was like wow so that that was really a wake-up call that i wasn't prepared for well i shouldn't say I wasn't prepared for it just it, it leaves you and if there were days I would come home very depressed. I'd be like, man, like seeing so many people die alone and see how they died. And, and you know, everybody has a story. You're like, where, yeah. you know, where's this person's family? Where's their loved one? Like, you start asking questions, and that's what sends you down like a, a, a bad road. I think a big uh, part of it, Dean, is the degradation you see people go through. Uh, so many people, and at least in my experience on police work, live a horribly isolated life. 
they die alone and they suffer tremendously before they do. Absolutely. And that's what, you know, that, that's what I was, was witnessing. And here I am in my young twenties. And I mean, I, I was, I, I, I am blessed, but back then, I mean, I didn't realize how blessed I was. Uh, I just was very fortunate with everything I had in my life. I mean, my father was my best friend. Uh, I'm working in midtown Manhattan. I'm going to nightclubs. I'm, I'm rubbing elbows with, you know, celebrities and having fun and, you know, just living a life. I, like if I, if I was working in Brooklyn, <laughs> I would, I would have to worry about where I was going to take a personal or get a right. sandwich. So I would come home and I would tell my father, I said, I, I got to thank you. I mean, this is, this has been phenomenal. He goes, but he goes, if you still want to be, you know, assigned to Brooklyn, uh, I can do that for you. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'll stay where I'm at. So it was a great experience. And, you know, and then slowly things start to happen. Like, you, you know, who's the first officer to get killed that I worked with? Right. And that first funeral. Uh, you know, who is in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, then you just, you start, it'll, it'll drive you mad if you try to go down the rabbit hole, but you just like, you know, tragedy. Everything has to go perfectly right to have this thing to go overall. One of the, the things the that perfect- you said that really struck me is I, was, I remember being early on in my career and I was very distraught about something and a, a senior officer who had been on a long time at that point said to me, don't try to make sense out of things that make no sense at all because you will drive yourself insane. This is a Law Enforcement Today show. We're talking with Dean Simpson, retired NYPD. When we return, we're going to talk about the incident where he was shot, how it impacted him, and, well, let's just say his journey afterwards. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. There was a time when you were actually allowed to post on social media without fear. We're happy to say that those days are not gone. There's a new platform called WeTalk for people just like you. They're certainly on the side of law enforcement. You can talk about anything from law enforcement issues to gardening to politics. Go to the website now at wetalk.com forward slash L-E-T. That's R-E-T-A-L-K dot com slash L-E-T. And you can claim your own Law Enforcement Today badge. Missed an episode of Law Enforcement Today? You don't have to anymore because now you can listen to it on Podopolo, the free new app that makes listening anytime, anywhere so easy. Catch up on shows you've missed and chat with John J. Wiley right there too. Download for free on the Apple or Google Play stores. That's Podopolo. And John J. Wiley wants to hear from you inside Podopolo. Return conversation with Dean Simpson, calling us from South Florida. Dean is retired NYPD. He's also author of two books. Number one, The Blue Pond, a memoir of an NYPD foot soldier and godless versus liberty, the radical left's quest to destroy America's Judeo-Christian foundation. Before I forget, Dean, let me say this. Thank you for your service. And earlier I alluded to the fact I knew a little bit about your story. I just didn't go into a lot of details. So a lot of this is a surprise to me as much as to the person listening. You were in Midtown Manhattan. You had a great assignment. It's the creme de la creme where people want to go in the NYPD. One of the things that I had to teach people a long time ago, I had to learn, and I learned the hard way, was it doesn't matter where you are, violence will find a way to get to you. And really bad stuff happens in the best neighborhoods because criminals drive, or in your case, take the subway or the bus or whatever. 
Yeah, you know, e- evil travels. No, no question about it. And you never know. I mean, it, it could be in the most innocent of places. For me, there, there was a lot of irony in how everything just came to be on that day. It was a, it was a winter day in, in the nineties, and I had been on the detail that I was in for about two years. I stayed in the command, but I sort of, in my squad, in my opinion, there were a couple of bad apples, and I knew if I stayed working with the cops I was working with, that um, just by association, it was going to cause me problems. So. Uh, the only detail that was available, there was a command-level highway patrol uh, open. Matter of fact, the lieutenant that was in charge of it, I played in a basketball league with, so it was pretty easy for me to make that segue. But there was really no other details available because it was a jam up on the job. There was no promotions. There was, you know, things were kind of frozen. So I came home, and I told my father, I said, listen, I, I said, uh, and he knew about some of the corruption things that I, I was seeing. And I said, you know, I, I had to do something. So I said, I'm, I decided to take this uh, detail. And my father looked at me and he was like, you know, like probably the three most dangerous things on the job is like, you know, warrants, uh, you know, domestic disputes and driving a squad car by yourself. And then this highway detail, you were by yourself. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of like, you know, I'm a pretty good sized guy. I, I just, you know, I was like, you know, I, I can handle it, you know, too stupid me. But, um, but, but I always had good tactics as well. So I said, with the car stops, I wasn't worried. I mean, I knew, I, plus I used my instincts, I have great instincts for the most part. And so I never had a problem with a car stop. But it was uh, it was early one morning. I was starting the detail. Uh, I took the squad car down. Um, anybody who's familiar with Manhattan is the West Side Highway. And uh, this was on 54th and 12th. It's at the back end of uh, which, uh, Clinton Park. The day before, I didn't, I didn't work. I was actually, I was doing something else. And I wasn't in the command. And there was a notice, a bulletin put out that there was a uh, triple homicide in the projects that are adjacent to the uh, park. Right. And the reason I bring that up is because if I knew that, I probably would have handled the following situation differently. And what happened was, as I get there that morning, it, it was a little bit of a drizzle. Um, I see two guys. They don't. They just don't look right. I knew everybody in the neighborhood who walks the dogs and. And I was like, these guys don't look right. Nobody's out because the weather wasn't too good. Um, I backed the car up, and they kind of disappeared into the park. And I was like, I'm not having my back to these guys. I said, let me just go up there, you know, see what's going on, and either get rid of them or whatever I have to do. So I walk up there. I don't see anything. And now the rain starts coming down pretty good. And uh, I'm all set to go back to the squad car. And I was, I don't know what I was going to do, but I think I probably wouldn't have stayed. I probably would have drove the car back up and went around the park again in the car. And before I could turn, I see somebody, my peripheral vision, come at me. And I was just, it was one of those things where you can appreciate this. Uh, you have that safety space. And whatever that is, in every situation, it could be different. You know, it could, you yeah. know, if somebody gets into that space, you just kind of like, nah, I don't feel comfortable with this. Well, and really bad I, things happen when people get too close to you. Well, exactly. Um it's something I like to see some laws be changed about that. I see in somebody, I don't want to get off on a tangent, but I see in somebody's protests, some of the protesters get right into the cop's face. And I think there should be, there should be a buffer for everybody's safety. Um, and they're allowed to get away with it, which is a shame. But in my case, it happened so fast that, you know, I wasn't going to be able to get to my service revolver in time. Um, the person physically, I kind of sizing things up. I was like, okay, you know, I, I didn't think the person was going to attack me in a sense. But I kind of was like, all right, you know, let me see your hands. He had his hand. He had a hoodie on, the hood up, 
one of those zipper type sweat jackets and where the pockets were in the side. And the next thing I know, one of his hands are coming out and I see something silver and shiny and it's just like, I know what that is. Right. I mean, it wasn't at me yet. And then it's a choice. I mean, can I get cover? I can't get to my gun fast enough, which mind you, the gun should have been out. I mean, I, I would assume I, I should have probably, on most car stops, I had my firearm down by my side. I say most because sometimes I didn't. It's just one of those things I feel. But, um, but sometimes I would have it out. But something like that, if I knew what happened the previous weekend, that weekend before that Tuesday, I'm sure my instincts would have been a little sharper. So not being, being basically in no man's land, um, I decided I got to charge him. And uh, so I charge him. I go right for the gun. I got both hands on the gun. Um, to my surprise, the, the other person was, was pretty strong. We were in a pretty good tussle now over it. And I started really like, thinking to myself, I was like, you can't lose this fight. <laughs> you know, you, you, you lose the fight. There's a good chance you're going to lose your life. And, uh, so I'm just about to have the gun. You know, I'm just about to get it from him. And, uh, the next thing I know, he, he knees me because I'm, I'm bent over and he got a position on me and he knees me into my chest and, all I could feel was the air just coming out of me. And I just couldn't get it. I couldn't take a breath in and went down to the ground. And I'm like, oh, no. And now I can't breathe. And basically, I'm at his mercy. So, but for the grace of God, you know, he didn't put a bullet in the back of my head. I tried everything to roll over because I was like, if he's going to shoot me, I really, I, I, I want to at least be able to, you know, see the evil in this person's eyes uh, before I go. And I couldn't even do that. So it was very helpless. It's a very, something that gave me nightmares for a long time afterwards, because you just felt that feeling of helplessness. And there's a nightmare that I'm sure a lot of cops can relate to is, uh, I haven't, haven't had it since I ha- was a cop, but the one where you, you do have your service revolver out and you can't pull the trigger. You just yeah. not strong enough or it's just not pulling. It's not working. It, you're not able to pull it. It's just not working. Oh, yeah. Or the and, bullet and dribbles it, out of the end, or worse yet, <laughs> it's like I, I need it and I have to use it, and I wind up hitting an innocent person. That too. So all those things go, all those things kind of go through, and in those nightmare scenarios, never, never one of them being that I was going to get the wind knocked out of me and and lay in a in a puddle of water, and you know basically have my life uh, being determined by you know this assailant. Before we go to break. Dean, I, I want to say this. What ended my career was a fight for my service weapon while still in my hand and fighting and all the rounds being fired off as a revolver. That's how long ago it was. And fortunately, he survived. I survived. I couldn't hear for a while. I thought I sprained my wrist. I wound up having multiple surgeries on my right hand and steel plates put in and was retired at the age of 33. That incident still affects me. Physically, not so much mentally like it used to, but it was a no-joke thing. When you know someone is going to try to kill you, it is a life-changing incident. We're talking with Dean Simpson. This is the Law Enforcement Today show. We return. We talk more about the incident and how it impacted you. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Want to win great prizes in awesome contests? Who wouldn't want that? It's easy. Just sign up and subscribe for the Law Enforcement Today radio show email newsletter. We won't spam you. No more than two emails a week. I promise. All subscribers are automatically entered in all future contests. Sign up at letradioshow.com. Scroll down to the sign up area. That's letradioshow.com. Mm-hmm. 
current conversation with Dean Simpson, retired NYPD, also author of the book, two books, The Lupin, a memoir of an NYPD foot soldier and godless versus liberty, the radical left's quest to destroy America's Judeo-Christian foundation. Before we end the break, Dean, we're talking about this, this incident. You're in a fight for your life. The guy winds up kneeing you, knocks the wind out of his arm with a gun, and something kind of important happened that you didn't talk about. Yeah, the the, the gun went off, and um, you know, convenient me for omitting that into this, uh, just blocking it out. But I hear a gunshot go off, but I don't I don't think I'm hit. I mean, at this point, I'm I'm filled with adrenaline. So and then so the the shot goes off first. Uh, in the sequence events, then I get, I get need and then I go, I go down to the ground. So, um, it's not until I'm not, I'm, I'm, it, it, at some point, um, oh, that's right. The, the, I didn't call on the radio because now I can't talk. It's the security guard. The peers are across the street and they have a security guard there. He hears the gunshot. He calls 911 and I can hear the sirens coming. And what happens is one of the guys show up at the scene, um, uh, is a friend of mine, um, um, uh, Sergeant Glenn, and he starts checking me and he goes, are you shot? Are you shot? Now I'm starting to get my breath. And I said, no, nah, no, nah, I don't think so. And the next thing I know, I have my gray gloves on and I see this blood coming out of it. And I'm like, oh, shit. and uh, I was like, yeah, I guess that's where, I guess that's where the round went. And, um, but still, I don't feel anything. I mean, it's, the adrenaline is just pumping so much and I'm just trying to get my ear back. And the guy is gone. The guy, uh, I mean, there were cops there really quick from that 911 call. And I think that's what scared the guy off. Uh, I couldn't hear too well. So I don't know exactly when I was able to start hearing the sirens because I was getting a ringing sound. Yeah. So I have a feeling that the guy heard the sirens before I did. So thank God he he took off. And now I'm in the back of a squad car on my way to Bellevue Hospital. You've been shot in the hand. Shot in the hand. And still don't know if I'm shot anywhere else. Because a, a second Dude, how many did times off. did you have to pat yourself down after incidents? We did it all the time. Are you okay? You've been hit? I don't know. Let me check. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. At that point, you just kind of like, and, 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 um, and, uh, the sergeant, he's, uh, you know, he, he was great. I just was like, I, at that point, you know, you start getting at the shock a bit. You're like, you're, you know, we live every day. You wake up you get, pretty much. We, we like our anchors. We like our routine. We like doing certain things on certain days. And I liked my routine there. I actually loved, I loved my command. I loved, there was a lot of things I loved about the, really loved about the job. And, um, you know, and I had a good routine. I knew a lot of the local people, like I said, would come out in the morning, walk their dogs. I was friends with all of them. And it was like one of these things where nobody was around. Like, there always is somebody around. And here it is. I'm by myself in the park fighting for my life with this guy. So, uh, and Did you realize at the time that it was life or death or that dawn on you afterwards? No, I knew I knew in the struggle. I, there, was, there was a point where I turned around and I said, I can't lose this. I, I oh, can't, dude. you know, like. You're, yeah, you're making I mean, me sweat just talking about it. I remember, and look, there were several instances I was in, but the one I'm talking about was very similar. I remember thinking to myself, this guy's trying to kill me. I'm going to die, but it's not going to be tonight, and it won't be because of him. And I was prepared to do whatever it took at that point to survive. And I think that's the part where, for some time afterwards, I was really mentally beating myself up. I mean, it was a lot of... 
the physical injury wasn't that bad. I mean, the, the, the hand was a bit mangled, had an operation, was supposed to get a second, wind up, you know, then you start fighting with the brass. I mean, there was, you know, like you can have so many fronts. And now here I am, I'm, I'm dealing with a physical injury, then the, the, the mental injury starts coming in. Now, my, my one doctor, orthopedic, he wanted to uh, have a second procedure done. The department's declining it. I'm just scratching my head. I'm like, I mean, decline, what do you mean declining it? If that's got to get done, we, you know, we, so it just became, it just seemed like everywhere after that point, there was a battle. And there was just stress and there was frustration. And I, it, and the days just got darker. I mean, it was just one of these things where my, my, my dream was, I mean, I was always, I, I mean, I, I love learning. I love, I love school. Uh, so my whole thing was, you know, to go up the ranks. I mean, this was going to be my career. Yep. And in a, in a flash of an eye, now I'm, you know, I'm arguing with some police surgeon on what day I should have to be forced to go back to work. And I'm like, you see that my, my hand is wrapped up and my arm is in a sling, right? I mean, I, I'm looking at the guy. I'm like, what do you want me to go back and do exactly? And, well, you can answer phones with your other hand. And I'm like, yeah. I said, well, I can let you know when I'm ready to go back. And, you know, because I still got to get from point A to point B. And there was just a lack of compassion. There was a lack of... When I talk to other people that went through similar situations, um, somebody who comes to mind is somebody that, that I think you're, you're familiar with, my, my friend Christine. Yep. And when I, I actually had read a story and saw interviews, and, and I, I, I've said to her, I said, it's exactly what I went through. I said, you, get, you know, it was almost a diversion. I don't know if it was good or bad, but there were times I was so f- off at the brass that I was forgetting that I nearly got killed. So, uh, look, uh, you're like preaching to the choir. One of the things that happens, and this is what a lot of people don't understand, you get seriously hurt, you get very close to dying, you have potentially career-ending injuries, and at that point, you are a number to the city or the county or the state, whoever it is, and the bean counters get involved, and your life becomes a non-issue. It's about getting you off the books getting you retired or getting you back to light duty, whatever it is. And it's as if whatever human compassion is for the individual is gone because then it's just, you're just a number to them. Well, I, I had a little bit of a meltdown. Um, I, and this was part of the, the, the descent. Um, I, you know, now I'm, I'm going to rehab and I have to report to the police surgeon every once in, you know, like I think it started with once every two weeks um, I mean, the first time I was there, he was looking to push me back. And I'm like, that's going to be a problem. And I went to my father and I was like, listen, dad, I said, you know, I, I don't want to stay home. I don't think it's healthy, but I, I'm not ready to go back yet either. And then I was, we were having an issue with the, with the second procedure. And I actually, I had to have something typed up. It was a two sentence thing to have done. And I called into the, to the police surgeon's office and there was a girl there that I knew. And I said, listen, before I come, would you mind? And they had offered. They said, Dean, if you need anything, I said, I just need this one thing signed because I, I, I got to get that to my doctor. No problem. And I showed up and the sergeant there, I mean, you got to picture this. There's 50 guys, and men and women in this room. And he comes out and goes, is this him? Is this Simpson? And I'm looking like, what the hell did I do? And then the guy just starts berating me. Now, I, I've been in the service and I understand, you know, I'm in basic training and I do something stupid. Yeah, I'm going to get yelled at, screamed at, I do push-ups. You understand that. Oh, professionals here. If I did something, uh, just pull me inside. Tell me what has to, you know, what it did. If you want to reprimand me, fine. But don't strip me down in front of everybody. And he goes on, you know, this isn't your personal secretary and how dare you. And I mean, he goes on for a couple of minutes and I'm just standing there in shock. 
by the time I calmed down, I went, I, 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 but for the grace of God, the guy left for, I guess, for mealtime or something. He wasn't there. By the time it all sank in, I, I really think I had a nervous breakdown. I mean, I start going berserk. And I'm like, who does this guy think he is? And I just, I just went nuts. And I wound up coming home and, you know, I said to my father, I said, this, this, this isn't right. And he, he was away at the time. So we were actually talking on the phone about it. And he goes, stay by your phone. And I hate to say this because I know there's so many cops that have issues and they don't have that phone call. They don't have somebody to reach out to. And this is where I say, I, I, I know I was fortunate in many ways. And this was one of them. I mean, like five minutes later, I get a phone call from the sergeant apologizing to me. And I'm like, I said, who is this? That who doesn't this? happen very often. Trust me. You know, it, in our world, that no. doesn't happen. We're going to take a short break. We're talking with Dean Simpson, retired NYPD. He was shot, uh, had injuries to his hand, and began the process of, for lack of better words, a spiraling out of a downhill spiral. Let's put it that way. When we return, we're going to talk about the incident that changed his life, his books, and more. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Are you frustrated with current social media platforms? There's a new platform called Retalk for people just like you. The platform is run and moderated by people who believe in patriotic family values. Go to the website now at retalk.com forward slash L-E-T. That's R-E-T-A-L-K dot com slash L-E-T. And you can claim your own Law Enforcement Today badge. If you haven't done so already, please download our app. It's 100% free. We got versions for your Android and iPhone devices, 100% free. You can download them today at our website, which is letradioshow.com. That's letradioshow.com. Be sure to get yours today. Return conversation with Dean Simpson, retired NYPD. He's also author of two books, The Blue Pawn, a memoir of NYPD foot soldier, and Godless versus Liberty, the radical left's quest to destroy America's Judeo-Christian foundation. Before we to break, Dean, long story short, seven years on the job, he was shot in the hand in, in a battle, a life and death battle with someone who's a, a very vicious killer. And you began having the impacts, the emotional impacts, the not just the physical. By the way, your injuries, how severe were they? The physical injuries weren't severe at all. They weren't life-threatening, no. But they were life-changing. Here's the thing. People think life-threatening doesn't mean life-changing. There's a lot of things that have profound impacts on your quality of life that may not threaten it. Well, yeah. I um, the, the being out of my routine... Um, what happens is now for the next couple of years, once I'm off the job and I go through that process, which is, you know, self, now I'm kind of left to, okay, you know, you don't have an anchor. You don't have your, you know, your, your, your life preserver and you're on your own to try to figure things out. And I mean, I start drinking a lot. Um, I, 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 not really realizing how much I'm spiraling downward. And then, um, 9-11 happens. And I was actually, I mean, this is, it breaks my heart to say, but I mean, I, I was up until I guess about four or five o'clock in the morning, the night before the giants were playing the Broncos on Monday night football. And I was drinking all night. And I mean, my, my thing was to sleep all, all day the next day. 
And when I did wake up, you know, I walked up to the store to get the paper and a coffee, and I see what's going on on the uh, the guy's television on the news in the in the deli. I'm like, what? The? I, I thought it was. I just I couldn't believe it. So across the street from where I lived uh, is the church, my my St. Patrick's Church that I was very close with. And I go in there and talk to my priest. And I mean, the church is filled, and I uh, it's as you can imagine, it's a crazy time in New York. And and now for the next couple of weeks uh, after that. Uh, I'm preoccupied. I'm, I'm going down to the pile. I'm, you know, I'm down there and I'm, I'm actually not drinking as much. Uh, it was kind of weird. It was just, now this was, I, I got to be down there. And, um, but at a certain point that stopped. Um, there were so many volunteers down there, cops, firemen. Uh, we, in my opinion, there was a point where we started to get in the way of the, the big machines. And the last night I was there, it was actually an altercation. And that's when I realized I was like between the, uh, the hard hats and, and, and us guys. And, and I said, I think, I don't think there's much more I can do without being in the way. So after that, I was down there for three weeks. Now we're into, I guess, October, the holidays are coming. And, uh, I just, there was a particular night. There was one night in particular, uh, uh, by, a lifelong friend, Father Joe, comes and uh, pays me a visit. I'm I'm doing this bouncing job in a neighborhood bar and just to you know kill some time and have some drinks with my buddy who owned the place. And uh, you know he says, "Hey, listen, you know, do I need to pray for you?" And I was like, "Hey, I, you know, I, I, I at that point I didn't know what to pray for for what. You know, I I, I knew I was in trouble, but you know, I I don't know what it is I I would be be praying for." And he said, listen, you know, once you come by the directory, it was something I had done a lot previously, but probably hadn't done in a couple of years. And I promised him I would, knowing I was had no intention. And this was December 23rd. Uh, I don't remember what day of the week it was. I think it was a Sunday night. And, uh, I mean, that, that was the night I, I, like, by the time I got home, I was like, I don't want to live. And... Uh, I decided, I, I remember there was somebody close to me that took their life and left a mess. And I said, well, I don't want to do that for anybody. And so I made a decision. Uh, there was a place when I was on the job, somebody had told me about that was really beautiful. It was like heaven on earth. And it was when they lost their daughter and they were just very spiritual people. And they were telling me about this place and another promise. I said, oh, you know, yeah, yeah one day I'll, I'll go visit. And I never did. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, that's something worth looking for. So I, I said, all right. So I said, let me... Let me let me go up there. So I, I go up to upstate New York and I take a train up there to Penn Station and uh here it is Christmas Eve and I figured, okay, you know, they told me about this mountain, I go hike the mountain, I figure, you know, what better place? It's secluded, nobody around. I you know, I, I really don't think too many people would have missed me, uh, in that sense. And this way there's it's it's over. You know, no more pain, no more uh, you know, self pity and everything else and uh, but something happened in between there. Uh, on the train ride to the place, I had a, a, a lady sitting across from me, and you know, just one of these people. She just she just wanted to talk, and I mean, I was ready to rip my ears off. I, was, I mean, she was so annoying. You know, at one point, she said, "You know, you know, what do you like best about the city?" And I said, "Well, you know, probably the thing I like most about it is, you know, there's eight million people, and I can go days without speaking with anybody." But the thing I like most is just being left alone. And as soon as the words came out of my mouth, I was like, wow. I mean, you really turned into a jerk. <laughs> so 
she was very kind. It, it didn't discourage her. And uh, I apologized. We got into a conversation, and she started telling me about her life. Um, she was a grandmother, lost a husband. She would go into the city to catch a play or lunch, and people watch, and she just loved the energy. And, you know, he's like, you know, what are you doing today, Christmas Eve? I said, I'm going to go hiking, you know. And she's just like, hiking? I don't know, you know. And uh, then she came out right before the train pulled into the Albany station. She had a note for me and, you know, uh, it's something that touched me. And, um, you know, there's, you know, how life is about hope and not giving up and, you know, and um, the kindness in her. Here's a person that probably an hour and a half before, I just would have done anything to be away from her. And now she's probably the closest person I have in my life at that moment. This almost sounds like a Frank Capra style movie. This woman hands you a note and it begins a process of changing your life. Yeah. You know, she, you know, she was saying, she was like, life's a gift. And I, I think that's something we forget. I think it's something that we, uh, uh, you know, when, when you're in the darkness, uh, I, I, it's very difficult to turn around and be appreciative. And, one thing I had to start doing, well, well, I had a moment on the mountain, you know, I, I made some promises and, you know, I knew the alcohol was an issue. So that was going to have to be, you know, the first battle. And then, you know, the next thing was you got to do something with your life because if you concentrate on yourself, uh, you're going to be depressed and you're going to be so consumed that you're not going to look at the rest of the world. And that's just not a good way to live. So I said, you got to start basically getting out and helping people. And, and once I started doing that and that road to recovery and I am where I am now, uh, it's a different person. I mean, thank God for ago. that. Thank God for that. And is that when you started writing your, your first book? No, I, I'm, I'm 54 now. I started, I, I was always a writer. I always wrote, wrote in school and different things, uh, articles, but I never wrote a book. So when I, I was blessed about um, 11 years ago, I met my wife she knew about a, a, a book I had a outline for. So we were away on vacation. It was the night that the five Dallas police officers were shot and killed. Yeah. Uh, another, uh, there was 13 injured and, um, it really had an impact on me. We we're away on vacation. It was July 7th, 2014, I believe. And she looked at me and she's like, it's not now when I tell you a story. If not so, now, when, and if not you, who? Right, and that's when the the book, the Blue Pawn, a memoir of an NYPD foot soldier is born. And by the way, the word pawn, a lot of people take that as a negative. It isn't. Well, I mean, in, in the book, you know, basically means a, a foot soldier. Right. Um, that's in, what I was getting. At. Was. Yeah, we think of a pawn as the the chess piece or being used by someone else. But right. we can get lost in that conversation. We're almost out of time. I want to make sure people know where they can get information about your first book, The Blue Pond, a memoir of an NYPD foot soldier, and second book, Godless versus Liberty, The Radical Left's Quest to Destroy America's Judeo-Christian Foundation. They can find them both on Amazon. The first one should be uh, at Barnes & Noble also, and there was a book in the middle. and I, 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 It was my wife's book, Gardenia's Garden, and anybody who has kids out there, young daughters, uh, I highly recommend it. It's about her story with her daughter and her migration from uh, Colombia to America. And probably the proudest day in my life being an American citizen was being at her uh, uh, nationalization ceremony and her taking the oath of allegiance. Phenomenal. Uh, and are you really online? Proud. Is there a place where people can find you? 
No, I, I, I'm, I kind of shy away from social media, but I know if I'm going to, uh, at some point, I got to start pushing myself in that direction as well. Well, you know what we're going to do, Dean? You and I will work on you taking that plunge in the social media world together. I want to thank you for being a guest on the show and sharing your stories. Very much appreciated. Hey, John Jay, I really appreciate this time. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.